two bombs went off inside large uh, packed theaters in the Bronx. Um, the bombs went off in the in the front of the, the theater. People scurried out and then nearly caused a riot when the police wouldn't turn the movies back on. You know, it was just bombs were seen as a part of life, especially in urban America. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. October marked an uptick in white nationalist violence in America. Proud Boys assaulted people in New York City. A man killed two people in a grocery store in Kentucky while telling a bystander that whites don't shoot whites. A man mailed pipe bombs to prominent Democrats, journalists, and George Soros. A shooter murdered 14 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Sometimes it feels as if America is entering a new era of political violence. Here to help us figure out if that's true is Brian Burrow, author of Barbarian at the Gates, Public Enemies, The Big Rich, and Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, well, first of all, for, the, for people that haven't read it, and everybody should read this, this book, it's really wonderful um, and, and interesting. It kind of talks about an era that I think America has forgotten about. Um, what is Days of Rage about? What ground do you cover? Days of Rage tells the largely untold story, as you mentioned, of six or seven um, underground revolutionary bombing groups uh, who were active during the 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, some of these groups you may have heard of, like the Weather Underground, and some you probably have not heard of, like the Black Liberation Army. Um, but it was a period in which essentially um, a swath of 1960s activists, black, white, and Latino, refused to give up the idea uh, of a coming revolution in America and thought that by uh, bombing or killing policemen, as Black Liberation Underground did, they could bring about that revolution. Okay, so give me, one of the things that I think that really struck me in the book is the numbers. Um, Can you give us like the, like how many bombs a day or a year are we talking about here? Uh, good question. Uh, it was most active in 1970, 1971, 1972, where one congressional subcommittee uh, at one point uh, counted 500 bombs detonated uh, during a single 18-month period. Um, so at you know at its height, something like three a day. Much of it concentrated, of course, in the cities, in New York, Chicago, and the Bay Area, especially the Bay Area, where this type of what you might call symbolic violence. Uh, persisted um, uh, uh, longer than than in a lot of places. And keep in mind, back then, 95% of what you're talking about are left-wing radicals detonating bombs outside courthouses, post office, and police stations late at night, not hurting anyone typically, but sometimes they did. Lives were lost. And mailing in or, or sending in communiques the next day, you know, announcing why the bombs were were, were set off. So, Bombs, for a good part of the 1970s, um, unlike what we've experienced in the last 20 years, bombs back then were, I I call them exploding press releases. They were the way um, leftist uh, groups 
um, made their aims and desires known. And what was the over? What was the motivation here? Like, what were these groups exactly trying to achieve? They were trying to overthrow the government. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, uh, in 1970, um, you know, the hardcore of 60s af- activists um, believed in this idea of a revolution coming to America, and they thought that um, they could trigger essentially an uprising, especially among the African American uh, community. Um, and obviously, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, they fatally misread, misread the political winds, if you will. And, but, but still, well into the 70s and early 80s, there were groups that just didn't give up, who f- it was important to do this symbolically. Uh, one or two groups had their own uh, pet uh, issues, uh, most notably one of the most active groups, the Puerto Rican group, known as the FALN, uh, which was very active, uh, 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 bombing uh, uh, storming political campaign headquarters in Chicago uh, well into the early 80s. Why don't we hear about this more? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I tried to, to figure that out. Um, you know, I approached this period, I approached Days of Rage uh, as a straight down the middle, centrist, just the facts man historian. Um, that said, um, you know, Conservative commentators would tell you that it has been forgotten in large part because the media is liberal and these people were all to the left of center. Um, I think there's something to that. I think that can be overstated. Um, It's also the the sheer difficulty of writing about all this. Um, Yes, you can say bombs went off another off in Manhattan today. But after you say that, there's not much else to say in large part because for 40 years, you know, the several hundred young militants who did this didn't give interviews. They certainly didn't give interviews to the mainstream press. And it's only now, what, 40 years later, that many of them in their 60s and 70s who were faced with, you know, end of lives in which their achievements, and I put that in quotes, um, have been largely forgotten. And so I found, to my surprise, um, that a good number of them were finally willing um, to talk about what was done back in the 70s. But even then, I think, as we look back, I think that the mainstream media has dismissed all of this as, as along the lines of kind of environmental terrorism um, in recent years. You know, crazy people blowing up trees. These people were not serious. Well, if you go back, they were taken quite seriously by the FBI, uh, by the White House, especially in the early 1970s. I think as, as time went on and, and their numbers dwindled, they did become even more of a political fringe. Yeah, it's not exactly as if revolutionary manifestos make for great, uh, you know, copy on the, lo- on the late night news. I think they would have been taken more seriously if there was a sense that America was primed for revolution. Um, as a result, I think it was easy for the mainstream media to dismiss these bombings, even in the numbers that, that were achieved. Um, as just kind of a, a political fringe. It really was, you know, bombs, especially in New York and San Francisco in the early and mid-70s, were just kind of dismissed as background noise uh, in, in, in troubled urban America at a time where cities were kind of falling apart, if you will, especially in New York. Um, this type of revolutionary violence was seen on par with gang violence uh, and just other kind of, 
crazy people detonating bombs and shooting cops. It, you have to go back to the 70s. I mean, one of my favorite uh, anecdotes is um, uh, this evening, this was, this was buried in an inside page of the New York Times in early 1971. Two bombs went off inside large uh, packed theaters in the Bronx. Um, the bombs went off in the, in the front of the, the theater. People scurried out and then nearly caused a riot when the police wouldn't turn the movies back on. You know, it was just bombs were seen as a part of life, especially in urban America. It's you know, reading the book. It makes me think about and this may be a crude uh, distinction to make or um, a crude comparison to make. And you can I, I encourage you to shoot it down. But it reminds me a little bit of the way we think of mass shootings, except that the mass shootings have a body count. Well, in that we became inured to it and felt that it was something beyond our uh, abilities to stop um, as a populace, that it was something that, oh, yeah, that again, uh, the FBI, the police will take care of it. Um, I mean, there was this <laughs> another one of my favorite quotes was a, uh, the FALN blew up a bomb at Mobile Oil Headquarters on 42nd Street in New York, actually killed two people. And there was a big crowd outside, uh, and the New York Post quoted a woman walking by whose reaction I've always remembered in her quote was, Oh, another bombing. Who is it this time? That was kind of the, that was kind of the sense of things. All right. So that's, that kind of gives us a real good, clear picture of what the seventies was like. I think when you look at what's going on today, particularly I think October was pretty bad. Do you have any sense that we are entering into something similar? How is it different? I have been, um, I have been reluctant to suggest that we're entering to any, into anything like we did before because the differences uh, do outweigh the similarities. The differences are, um, you know, as you look at the type of violence that, that we've seen, certainly here in the last couple of months, it is largely done, uh, it has been carried out by people who would appear to have some type of mental illness issues. Uh, you know, it is not uh, an organized violence, if you will. Uh, back then, what you had were uh, people who had uh, taken up uh, a single ideology, mostly Marxist-Leninist, um, and who worked in concert often with each other uh, to carry out these things. Today, you have an ideology spread on the internet largely and by uh, French media, and it appeals, I think, first and foremost um, to people who are disenfranchised, who feel left behind, and all too often it's carried out by uh, people that I think you'd have to say are fringe members of society, and at least in the case of uh, the Pittsburgh and Miami incidents, um, who seem to have some mental health issues. So, yes, there's violence. Um, we've, we've dealt with that, you know, we've dealt with that off and on for 15 years. Most clearly, Matthew, I think, the comparison is to the homegrown Islamists who have done, you know, bombings uh, since 9-11. Uh, not uh, despite, uh, you know, claims of, 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 of uh, responsibility by ISIS and other groups in the Middle East. It's pretty clear that the type of Islamist violence that we've seen intermittently in the U.S. over the last 15 years has been carried out by young people or troubled people um, who pick up 
uh, this ideology over the air, internet and then carried out in individual acts. Um, I think that's what the latest violence, the latest right wing violence smacks of very much. It's disorganized uh, political violence as opposed to what we saw in the 70s, which would be called organized political violence. And I think the the organized part is a real big difference. And the and the few cup the couple times that that organized violence has creeped out, uh, the FBI usually catches it. I think the the most recent example was the three men in Kansas who had planned to uh, blow up the apartment complex with the Somali immigrants, right? That that type of thing we are we are seeing fairly regularly, and I and I do think that's analogous to the Islamist and stuff we've seen over the last 15 years. It, it also should be said that the forces of law of, of law enforcement, whatever you may think of their uh, goals, their performance is massively more uh, effective than it was in the 1970s. When, if you read Days of Rage, uh, you know there are dozens of policemen and FBI agents saying we had no clue. Not only do we not have any clue about these groups because they did not have informants. Um, but just the basics of, I mean, they had far few surveillance tools, obviously. They didn't have, you know, IP addresses to follow up and um, uh, they didn't know which phones to tap. But just the, some of the basics uh, of, of police work were still pretty much in their infancy in, in the 1970s. Things like following people on the streets, they were generally unable to do. Today, law enforcement, the FBI, seems... Uh, uh, exponentially more effective so that someone like this Florida van bomber, uh, you know, is is found within 24 hours and nobody in America kind of sits and says, wow, other than the fact that 40 years ago you could do that and, you know, be at large for five and 10 years before you might be found. I mean, the Unabomber, what was this, barely 25 years ago, was at large for, for what, 10 or 15 years doing that. And that type of, you know, ongoing, at-large, uh, politically violent figure just doesn't seem to happen as much in large part because law enforcement's got a lot better at finding them. Well, and also to speak to the organizational aspect of it, one of the big parts of your book is that there's an underground, right? There's a network that's kind of teeming underneath the surface that's, that's helping people disappear, right? Yeah, and it was... Not only – look, you could call – if you looked at the totality of right-wing violence right now, there is an, uh, there's an online underground, if you will. There are places that one can go for support, uh, chat rooms or whatever we're calling them in 2018, uh, where you can talk with other people uh, about doing this type of thing. The organized right-wing right wing groups that you've seen, um, uh, such as those that came together at Charlottesville, those who have occasionally you know, beat up protesters, have so far, we have not seen those organized right-wing groups um, resort to anything like um, sustained bombing campaigns. Uh, you know, one of the few that one of the few incidents that rises even within sight of that would be the young man down here in Austin, where I am last spring, who set off the, the rarest of political violence, a serial bombing campaign. And yet that turned out not to be part of a political group, but one young, I think fair to say, troubled young man who clearly imbibed um, 
of this right wing online underground and decided to do this on his own. Okay, what are you seeing that is? Does I mean, obviously, this stuff is terrible uh, in general, but is there anything particular, any strain, or anything that you're worried about uh, that you think that may return us to something like the seventies? Well, it's funny. It's funny because right now in November 2018, we're talking about the possibility or the specter of organized right wing violence. Two years ago, we were talking very much. I was giving the same interviews on podcasts um, uh, about the specter of left wing violence, about of Black Lives Matter violence. Um, and there was a lot of questions. Would these this new wave of African-American activism um, lead to uh, some type of organized bombing campaign or something. And you you saw very clearly that the leaders of Black Lives Matter um, have learned from the past and decided um, that that type of bombing campaign, that type of political violence um, was not only ineffective, it was it was politically counterproductive. It it, it seemed rather than um, rather than than rise, people rising up, they they got a lot of pushback. So while you saw political violence intermittently in Baltimore and in in elsewhere, you know that was pretty much you know mob type stuff, minor upright, minor in retrospect uh, uprisings after an incident of uh, a young black man killed in Baltimore or in Ferguson. Um, so you saw. Uh, you got the sense, I remember reading the op-eds at the time of young African-American activists, you know, kind of peering over the abyss down into the possibility of, of, of political violence and turning away. Um, I think we're now approaching that same uh, situation with the right wing. Um, I, don't, I don't perceive that that's likely, um, but certainly any time we have – this type of activity over the last 20 years, whether it's left wing, whether it's right wing or whether it was Islamist, you know, it's a question that gets raised. And that is, good Lord, are we going to have a, a right wing weather underground? Are we going to have a right wing uh, Black Lives Matter? And I kind of doubt it. I think the goals are different, too. If you look at what I'll what I'll largely call the the, the right wing fringe or the alt right uh, they're more interested in mainstream integration and the mainstream spreading of their ideas, right? It's not like the leftist violence in the 70s was about a revolution, about changing the system. And the alt-right feels like it's more about infecting that system and kind of pushing it rightward. Well, I think more than anything, it, it's frankly about about the spread of modern communications. The bombings of the 1970s, the killings of the 1970s, were almost exclusively – symbolic and intended to spread a message. I talked with I talked with one of my favorite guys in the book, uh, Ray Lavasser, who was a, a, a young man from Maine who uh, identified strongly with Weather Underground, with Black Lives Matter, uh, excuse me, with the Black Liberation Army, and he put together a group in the middle of the 70s uh, that bombed successfully until 1984. Um, and he I, I, I talked with him for hours, and at one point he says, you know, today you just wouldn't have to do any of that. Back then we had to put, you know, we had to detonate bombs to get anybody to print our message, to get anybody to hear us. The fact is today you don't need to resort to bombs to get attention. Any, you know, the press is all over you. It's, you know, you, 
your microphone is as close as your laptop. Um, you just don't need to do that type of thing. Um, and keep in mind also bombings today represent or we think of them very differently since 9-11. 9-11 changed everything in terms of the way America views bombing and political violence. I think back in the 1970s, which came in the wake of so much violence in the late 60s in the streets, it came in the wake of revolutions around the world in 1968. Um, you know, there was a sense that bombs were somehow a legitimate means or semi-legitimate means of political violence. I think 9-11 has changed the way that Americans think of a bomb. Bombs today mean people are going to die. Back then, they didn't necessarily. And so I think there is a sense that, that this, is a, this is now a bright white line don't step across because you're highly unlikely to get public support for it. That seems so, that seems so strange a concept to me to try to wrap my head around. And I think it's because, you know, I was born in 1983, uh, went to high school post-Columbine, um, it's odd to me to think of bombs as not dangerous, or I mean, obviously they were dangerous, but as semi-legitimate forms of, of, of you know, revolutionary politics. That's, that's really hard for me to, to grasp. It is, it is, but then think about what these people were coming in the wake of. They were coming in the immediate wake of and greatly inspired by Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, by Mao in China, and especially Fidel and Che in Cuba, where uh, this type of thing had been shown to be effective, uh, that you could do it to spread your message. There was, I don't want to say a public acceptance of the bombing press release scenario, but there was an understanding between the political underground and the public that 90% of these things did not hurt anybody. Um, I will say, oddly, that even that there was almost no denunciation, public denunciation of these people, um, and perhaps because they were fringe elements and they were beneath the largely beneath, you know, the New York Times didn't need to editorialize these people because I think they took it for granted that they were seen as fringy. Um, but there wasn't there there. We were coming off a period of 15 years uh, going back to the early 60s, where this type of behavior uh, around the world had led to governments being toppled and bombs were used, uh, not so much the way they are today. You know, people were not back then setting off car bombs to kill civilians. They were setting off pipe bombs late at night to get their press releases in the newspaper. It was just a very different thing. And the two ta the two attacks on the World Trade Center um, in which innocent civilians died, I think just pretty much cut off that um, as, you know, whatever relevancy or, you know, or acceptance um, has died. So to change tracks just a little bit, you know, we've mostly focused on, when we're talking about today, we've mostly focused on the right wing. We've touched on it briefly a little bit. You said two years ago you were uh, talking about a return of left-wing violence. What do you think of... Uh, what I'll broadly call Antifa. You know, I, I, I don't follow this uh, Antifa and the right-wing groups today um, any more than, than as a, a regular and earnest newspaper reader. I kind of wondered what the heck happened to Antifa. I mean, it seemed to be coming up, you know, 
strong there a couple of years ago, and I I was reading something about the other day that referenced it, and I just I turned to my sweetheart and just said, "Wow, when was the last time you heard about these guys?" They're still they're just not covered as much. I saw them. Um, I was at Unite the Right Two, and they were definitely there. Uh, but you don't, yeah, it, it's not something you hear a lot about. They cause some property damage, generally, the places they go, but they're not, you know, they're not like, say, the Proud Boys who are beating up people in New York City. Yeah, but I just get the sense that Tifa was people who wanted to run around and punch a Nazi. What I've heard them described as both, both, both like Proud Boys and Antifa is that they're, they're cosplaying or they're LARPing. Right, they're enacting a they're enacting a fantasy of. Well, there, of, there is a sense that both of these, that even Charlottesville, where people died, that both of these are are sensing to be political street theater, which is very, which is much more like what we saw, uh, you know, from the Panthers and other activists in the '60s, as opposed to the bombing of the '70s. You know, the 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 Panthers were all about street theater. And that's that's the type of thing I think that both these groups are today. Is it possible that they morph into something um, organized and underground and and uh, taking the lives of innocents more more often than, than has happened? Yeah, it's it's possible. I just don't see the conditions. I don't see the the, the fertile ground uh, for for that type of behavior to gain traction. Well, what are those conditions? What is that fertile ground? I would just reference our early discussion, the sense that the sense that there was still a, 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 when these people started bombing, when weather started bombing in, in 1970, they did have massive public support among the anti-war left, which was a very vital group in 1970. What weather didn't understand is that the, the anti-war left was in the process of splintering into a million different isms, feminism, environmentalism. You know, the anti-war left basically turned its uh, back on the idea of a political revolution and certainly turned its back on anything like uh, political violence. But there was the sense at the beginning of the 70s that you had fertile ground. And certainly insofar as weather especially lived on the handouts and donations of leftists back then, uh, and we're able to stay underground, let's be clear, for seven years uh, with very, what, maybe one of them being arrested and min- and very few of them ever being convicted of anything. I'd have to say whether operating in, in a fertile ground. And I just don't sense that there's anything like that today. I mean, if Black Lives Matter or some right wing group decides they want to go underground, there's only two ways to support yourself. Um, you can do like Weather did, which was which had the fertile ground and was able to get donations uh, from a lot of mostly radical lawyers, but also radical citizenry. By the late 70s, that had largely gone away, and you saw those groups surviving by, I think, the only ways they could and what you'd have to see today, and that is by robbing banks. <laughs> when you look at the Simeonese Liberation Army, which came out of nowhere in 1973, at a time everybody believed this violence was going away. You know, the SLA comes out, Ray Lavasser's group starts bombing all across the Northeast, the FALN. These groups didn't no longer had the fertile ground. Something had already changed by then. And so they resorted to, to bank robberies. You know, some of their most violent crimes were not bombings. They were the, the bank robberies that they carried out um, to fund themselves. And I question today how uh, an underground bombing group, if not by some type of what they used to call 
uh, one of my favorite words, expropriations. Um, and that type of thing, of course, um, exposes the group to even more heat from law enforcement and I think makes their um, their endurance even less likely. You touched on something that's one of my pop, my favorite things to, to debunk, so I want to dive into it just briefly. Um, the anti-war portion of this, uh, I think in the popular consciousness, gets played up much more than was actually the case, right? You know, Nixon ends the draft in 1971, it gets extended, and then officially ends in 1973, and that movement kind of breaks apart. Uh, but you make the case in your book that the anti-war portion of this to some of these groups was almost secondary. That, 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 that's one of the great myths of these under, underground groups in the 70s, especially weather. I think to the extent that anyone remembers today, they were, they were bombing against the war. Well, they, well, they weren't. They were, they were happy to take support from the anti-war left, and they were, of course, virulently anti-war. But you know, the weather underground, the BLA, the SLA, primarily about – um, igniting some type of of, of African American uprising. They were they were all about uh, freeing the blacks, uh, stopping the oppression, getting the ghettos to rise up. And as crazy as as crazy as that sounds today, that's legitimately what they thought could happen then. The Panthers were so popular uh, and seemed to have so much uh, so much support, uh, especially in the cities, that it was easy for the, the the most hardcore militants to believe, wow, these people are, are ready to rise up. Um, and it was so their their cutting edge issue was always um, African-American police brutality, uh, poverty, housing, all those issues. Uh, they were they were absolutely happy to take support, to take money from the anti-war left. But in 1971, 1972, on into the 70s, they weren't bombing about the war. They were bombing. Uh, initially in support of the African American community. Later in the in the decade, they were bombing in support of uh, you know against Americans in El Salvador or, or whatever whatever the left was irked about at the time. They would they would take to bombing about. Right, it's almost like the anti-war stuff was the gateway drug to revolutionary politics. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. I wish I'd said I wish I'd used that, Matthew. What part do you think? Our politicians and other personalities play in stoking this violence. You know, many in the punditry and the commentariat lay at least some of the blame for the uptick in right-wing violence at President Trump's feet. Do you think there's any truth to any of that? Oh, I, I think without question. Uh, without question. Um, he is – his rhetoric uh, has inflamed these groups, has given them hope and succor. Uh, just, I, I just don't see how you, how you deny that. Uh, that he that his words have emboldened um, this the right wing violence we've seen. I, I just don't think there's any way around that. Um, I think the fact that he has abrogated all moral leadership that has typically been the, the you know something that the American presidency has always uh, led. Um, you know I just lo- I just love you know Trump uh, is out there. He takes one day where that Saturday where he seems concerned about the. Uh, uh, the killings at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and the next day he's back to tweeting about football. You know, th- just it, it's very clear that in terms of um, an intellectual fertile ground, that's what the right wing, the far right, is 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 living in right now. We've never seen anything like this in modern American history. I hope we never see it again. We usually try to end the show on a scary note, 
something worrisome to really make the audience afraid. I think that's a really good place to end. Matthew, thank you. Thank you for thank you for coming on the show, Brian. It was fascinating to talk. Anytime, man. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening to War College. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. Check us out on Twitter at war underscore college or facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. So, hey, listeners, I've heard your feedback about the loudness levels in the episodes, and I tried a different mixing technique this time around. Please reach out and let us know if that's working better. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a comment and a rating on iTunes. It helps others find us. I've got another bonus episode coming this week, also on the horizon, a discussion about Saudi Arabia with Shadi Hamid and a look at the life of journalist Mary Colvin with a special guest host. Stay tuned.